from coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Hello and welcome back. I'm Elizabeth Dowdell, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news. We'd like to begin this episode by acknowledging that Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM, a campus and community recording studio located here in Edmonton, Alberta, on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples. Treaty is all about relationships, and the very least we can do in this relationship is to acknowledge the people who continue to live and gather here and who continue to influence the stories we make and our understanding of the land around us. In this week's episode, Tara and former Andrea Weeb speaks with Liam Hildebrand of Iron and Earth about how oil and gas sector workers can adapt to and support the low-carbon transition. And before we get into that interview, here are this week's headlines. of the provincial carbon tax in June, the Alberta government is seeking feedback and conducting engagement on its new plan to cut greenhouse gases. Named the Technology, Innovation, and Emissions Reduction Program, the government is meeting with over 150 stakeholders, including representatives of the oil and gas sector, mining, and agricultural sector, among others. The public is also invited to weigh in on this plan through an online survey. The proposed plan would apply to facilities emitting 100,000 tons of CO2 equivalent in a year. These facilities would be forced to reduce their per unit emissions intensity by 10% relative to average levels between 2016 and 2018. Under this plan, emitters can actually increase their emissions by increasing output more than the required decrease in per unit emissions intensity. Listeners interested in learning more about the Alberta government's efforts to address the climate crisis can visit terrainforma.ca. There you'll find a link to the online survey where you can provide your feedback on the proposed plan. The survey is open until August 2nd. On Wednesday, July 17th, environmental groups around the country are planning to demonstrate outside CBC headquarters. Demonstrators are asking that the CBC host a federal leaders debate on the climate crisis and a Green New Deal. With over 11 million Canadians tuning into the leaders debates, environmental groups are demonstrating to highlight the importance of informing the public about each candidate's strategy to address the climate emergency. As the CBC finalizes plans for election coverage, demonstrators from coast to coast will be gathering outside studios during the 6 o'clock news to encourage the broadcaster to host this debate. Edmontonians interested in this demonstration can visit the CBC studios in City Centre Mall at 10062-102 Ave and keep an ear out for Terra Informa correspondents covering this event. Our final headlight is an update on the long-running and contentious development of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. This expansion project was first approved in 2013, but attracted controversy from environmental and Indigenous groups, along with opposition from the government of British Columbia. In 2018, the Canadian government purchased the pipeline for $4.5 billion. Later in the year, the Federal Court of Appeal overturned the 2013 approval by the National Energy Board, 
stating that the proponent had failed to sufficiently consult with First Nation groups and had not adequately considered marine life impacts. After conducting a second round of consultations with First Nations, the federal government again approved the project in June of 2019. And this has prompted six First Nations to file another legal challenge against the project. The First Nations claimed consultation was not substantial and the Canadian ownership of the project created bias that prevented meaningful engagement. Groups also claimed the government withheld information until after formal consultation was closed. Indigenous representatives have called the entire process superficial and contrived. Lawyer Merle Alexander, representing the Shuau Hamel, First Nation in BC, stated that the group initially supported the project, but became concerned that an oil spill would destroy sacred sites and the community's source of water. Alexander provided the following quote to the CBC. The Crown seemed to already have a list of accommodations that it was willing to accept, had created this list, and sort of waited to roll them out. In our experience, it didn't seem like the process was ever in good faith. It seemed like they had decided ahead of time what the accommodation measures would be before ever meeting First Nations. It was intended to create a false narrative of consultations so that Canadians would feel, okay, at least they went out there and tried harder with First Nations. End quote. The reapproval of the project has also resulted in a legal challenge from environmental groups. EcoJustice, on behalf of the Raincoast Conservation Foundation and Living Ocean Society, filed a motion asking for leave to appeal the approval. These groups believe the pipeline approval and resulting increase in tanker traffic on the Pacific coast will threaten the already at-risk southern resident orca population. This threatened species has a population under 100 and is protected by the Species at Risk Act. In a report by the National Energy Board, the government suggested the project will have significant adverse effects on the whales. EcoJustice believes that if the government has failed to meet its responsibility to protect these species, the court can again overturn project approval. EcoJustice has also expressed concerns about the carbon dioxide emissions of extracting, transporting, and burning oil from the Alberta oil sands. The challenge also states that the updated assessment was not adequately scoped, assessing impact within 12 nautical miles instead of the legally required 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone. So the Trans Mountain Expansion Project has been the center of a large debate about economic development and environmental conservation, as well as a discussion about the responsibilities of project proponents and the rights of affected communities. If these challenges move forward, this project can again be delayed while the National Energy Board completes another round of consultation and environmental assessment. For more information about these newest updates, visit terrainforma.ca. We'll keep you updated as the story continues to develop. Now for this week's main story. Terra Informer Andrea Weeb met with Liam Hildebrand of the Iron and Earth Organization about their work advocating for oil and gas development to incorporate more renewable energy. Let's listen. Would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, my name's Liam Hildebrand. I'm the Executive Director of Iron and Earth. Yeah, and can you tell us a little bit about Iron and Earth? Who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so Iron and Earth is a group of oil sands workers and Indigenous community members helping to empower ourselves and others to build a sustainable energy economy. And it really all started when I was working in the oil sands as a boilermaker for about six years 
on and off. I'm a double-ticketed tradesperson myself. I have a ticket in steel fabrication and a ticket in welding. And I was up in the oil stands having lots of conversations with my coworkers about what we saw for the future of energy. And eventually oil prices started crashing and we were going through sort of these boom and bust cycles and realized that renewable energy was the future and we wanted to be a a part of not only the employment side but also in regards to actually helping push that future forward. So we launched Iron and Earth to help uh, make that happen. Can you talk about some some of the projects that you've been working on? Our first major project was the Louisville Solar Daycare project. And we helped install an 8-kilowatt solar PV system on the community daycare. And we actually used the installation as a training opportunity for for uh, 10 fossil fuel industry workers and five Louisville community members. So we did three days of in-class training, and then we got everyone up onto the roof and uh, had them install a working renewable energy system that uh, by the end of the course, we had it all sort of turned on, and it was was really exciting and empowering uh, experience for everyone. And it was really cool to see the benefits of that hands-on application as opposed to doing some sort of mock installation in a warehouse where people were troubleshooting. We found some things that we hadn't expected and had to account for during the installation. And it was sort of a much more realistic sort of type of experience as opposed to more of a purely classroom setting. And uh, as I mentioned, it had a a lot of integrated cross-cultural components, such as the pipe ceremony and a sweat lodge. And we actually had a community celebration at the end of the training program. And uh, we had a a massive moose meat feast and had a bunch of the traditional Louis Bull cuisine. And it was super delicious, super fun. And uh, we had a gift exchange, and yeah, it was just really, really positive experience for everyone. And our second project was um, the 365 Greenhouse on the East Coast. So we started an East Coast chapter about two and a half years ago, and they actually just took it upon themselves, a group of fossil fuel industry workers out in St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador to build a renewable energy-assisted greenhouse. So when they made the announcement that their intention was to go forward with this type of project, we had an opportunity to partner with the Autism Society of Newfoundland and Labrador, who also wanted uh, a new greenhouse, and they thought it would be a perfect opportunity for sort of collaborative Effort. So we've uh, just finished fundraising for all of the infrastructure for that project. We still have a bit of fundraising to do for the remaining solar required. But, um, yeah, we're going to be breaking ground 
on that project in the spring. And um, we've actually already done some solar installations for that project. We've installed three kilowatts of solar, and we use that as a training program opportunity as well, similarly to how we approach the Louisville project. And uh, what what is your training program? Um, how many people have you trained, and what does it look like? So right now, we have trained a total of 45 people. We've mostly partnered with uh, other training program providers, but we're in the middle of developing our own internal uh, training program as well. So we're going to have a CSA five-day solar program that's specific to electricians. And then we're going to have a 10-day community solar skills program that's available for anyone with a minimum of grade 10 high school education. And we're also hoping to develop a five-day community wind skills training program. And we're in the middle of figuring out the details on that. I want to ask you about like the types of jobs that they're able to get after they get the, that training. Right. Yeah. So some of our trainees have gone out and have attempted to start their own solar energy installation companies. And it's been more challenging than they or we had anticipated to really enter that, that market as entrepreneurs because there's we're still at the leading edge of the, the growth curve. And one of the things that we're still trying to figure out as an organization is how to best support our trainees in establishing long-term careers in solar. How we've always viewed these things as an organization for the most part, though, is a diversification into other opportunities. So a lot of our trainees will likely continue working in the fossil fuel industry to a certain extent, but hopefully be able to also work in the solar industry and eventually the wind energy industry and other types of renewable energy industries like geothermal and biofuels and biomass um, as those industries grow. But um, yeah, it's it's a really challenging thing to really make the leap into full employment in the renewable energy industry as it is sort of an emerging market still. But, um, yeah, and and another thing that we're trying to figure out is um, how do we best connect our trainees with unions that might be interested in more workers that have solar training uh, and recruitment firms that are working with employers trying to fill uh, employment opportunities in that market. But, yeah, I guess sort of anywhere from starting your own solar energy company to working as a laborer for a large-scale solar farm and everything kind of in, in between, depending on other skills that the, the trainees already have and additional training that they might want to do after. So this is Elizabeth just dropping in to, to uh, provide some quick context on the next question. As mentioned in this week's headlines, there have been further legal challenges regarding the Trans Mountain Expansion Project put forward by six First Nations. 
Uh, at the same time, there's also been support for Indigenous ownership of the pipeline. Project Reconciliation is an Indigenous-led group that is hoping to buy a 51% stake in the project for about $2.3 billion, with the plan to distribute revenues among participating communities and direct the remaining revenue into a sovereign wealth reconciliation fund to then be reinvested in low-carbon infrastructure projects. This idea has been supported as a way to mitigate the concerns of Indigenous groups about the pipeline. Now let's get back to that interview and hear Liam discuss Iron and Earth's stance on Indigenous ownership of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Let me frame that answer in regards to the conversations that I was having up in the oil sands, which has shaped our organization's non-stance on pipelines at the moment. Mm -hmm. Basically, a number of the founding members and our current members are very supportive of the Trans Mountain Pipeline and getting access to new markets, while other members and other founding members were very opposed to new development, and they saw going down that path as not necessarily economically viable and also just a perpetuation of the direction that we've been going. And so it became pretty clear early on that if our organization was going to take a stance one way or the other, we would really be alienating one side considered uh, in regards to any new infrastructure project decision. Yeah, that that response really seems to fit your your mandate and the direction that your or, or the kind of the role that your organization has as an almost like an intermediary between oil oil workers and people who want to transition into something new. So I think that's totally fair. Specific. I don't know if you can comment on this, uh, but specifically related to Indigenous leaders. I mean, you work with some Indigenous communities, some Indigenous workers. I don't want you to speak on their behalf or anything like that. But uh, do you? What do you think of Indigenous leadership um, for groups that are thinking of buying the pipeline? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different sides to that. I think one thing that Iron and Earth has been really inspired by is some of the perspectives of some of the Indigenous leaders that we have been working with in regards to taking a holistic view of, of nature in a way that doesn't unfold in a lot of conversations um, with purely settler folks and really taking a seven-generation look forward in making decisions around uh, development in their territories. And on, a, on the other hand, there's been some ongoing challenges with resource development exploiting Indigenous communities and Indigenous communities not benefiting from these projects. And so, to me, it's very natural that 
some of these communities are wanting to participate more fully in some of the new projects coming up now that those opportunities are becoming more viable to them. So I think from all the conversations that I've I've had with Indigenous leadership, um, yeah, it's a very, very challenging tension to to balance. What are some of the things that you've learned in those conversations with Indigenous communities and groups about those decisions specifically? You're talking about a more holistic way of looking at these projects. Anything specific that you've learned? Yeah, totally. So one of the lessons that came out of our first training program with the Louis Bull tribe was, yeah, it, it was really interesting how Desmond Bull helped set the whole program up. Um, and you he uh, invited an elder in to start the training program with a pipe ceremony and uh, sort of brought everyone together in a circle to reflect on the spiritual nature of what we were about to do over the next five days in this training. And so bringing that spiritual element to uh, a program like that was something that I hadn't anticipated. And uh, another thing we did was we had a sweat lodge ceremony um, on the third day of the course. And again, that that dove even more deeply into the spiritual side of things. And beyond that, it really helped forge relationships between some of the Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in, in the course. And coming out of the program as a whole, it was pretty powerful how Desmond reflected on what happened during the program, um, looking at some of the relationships that were formed between some of the, the participants in the program, some of them coming from the fossil fuel industry who had never even really set foot um, in an Indigenous community before, and had come away with a completely new perspective on uh, Indigenous peoples. Um, and Desmond really reflected that, to him, this is what truth and reconciliation looks like. On one hand, the truth of understanding who some of these Indigenous community members really are and what their beliefs really are. So starting with that truth is really important. And also the truth of some of the uh, colonial history that has impacted these communities. And then the reconciliation piece of forming relationships with each other and sort of working in a, in a collaborative way together and also helping work together to create solutions was, to him, what truth and reconciliation can look like in, in practice. And so that really helped inform how we want to to move forward with some of, well, to move forward with everything that we do, really. What do you think is your role as, as Iron and Earth to help to facilitate those relationships, opportunities for those relationships to develop? Yeah, I think we have a really exciting role to play in that 
I mean, when I was a fossil fuel industry worker working in the oil sands in Fort McMurray, um, I at one point took a kayak and, and kayak from Fort McMurray up to Fort Mackay and kind of blown away by the amount of pollution in that river. And uh, I read a lot of stories about some of the, the impacts to that community living next to these big industrial operations. Could, you see, could you see actual signs of the pollution? Uh, I'm not entirely sure what the pollution was, but the river was, was pretty rank. Mm-hmm. Um, and my kayak was pretty quickly covered with just, yeah, I, I had kind of planned on, on <laughs> filtering the water from the river to drink during my trip. And that just wasn't possible for sure. I'm not sure what exactly the reason for that is, but my mind came to some conclusions. I, not only that, but also some of, some of the, the stories and the science around what has been happening in, in Fort Mackay with some of the health issues and the cancer. There's been some debates around the validity of that science, but regardless, it's, it's not too much of a stretch of the imagination to imagine the impacts um, happening in, in Fort Mackay, uh, situated pretty much in, in the heart of the, the industrial development of the oil sands. And I felt very responsible for the impacts to these communities being a worker building the infrastructure that is creating the impact. And so that was a pretty deep source of guilt. And I think a lot of workers feel that as well, um, based on the conversations I have had with my coworkers about this. And I think it's a really powerful opportunity to to now provide those same workers with opportunities to have a hands-on contribution to reconciliation efforts. Um, so I think that's part of the space that that we can kind of fill. Another is just that we are pushing renewable energy development forward, and we have a very deeply embedded uh, philosophy and set of principles that relate to truth and reconciliation in that we have to make sure that renewable energy development is truly beneficial for these communities and that Indigenous communities are empowered to really lead this this, uh, energy transition forward. And I think there's a lot of exciting developments uh, in which which that is happening, and I, I think Iron and Earth can help contribute to ensuring that that, uh, that is the case moving forward as well. So that was Tara Informer, Andrea Weeb, interviewing Liam Hildebrand of Iron and Earth. That's all the time we have for this week. So thank you for listening to Terra Informa. 
If you have any questions or comments about the show, send us an email to Tara at CJSR.com, tweet us at Tara Informa, or check us out on Facebook. To catch up on the latest environmental news, visit our website, terrainforma.ca. Thank you to our volunteers and Terra Informers, Hannah Cunningham, Sonic Patel, and Sophia Osborne, and Sean Hu for helping us out with this week's episode. Terra Informa is entirely volunteer-run and survives because of generous donations to our host studio, CGSR 88.5 FM. Visit cgsr.com to learn more about the station and consider a donation to keep environmental news like this on the air. I've been your host, Elizabeth Dowdell. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll catch us next week right here on Terra Informa.